Hello and welcome to the Clockwork Aranya podcast, where we're telling the story of various European championships. In the first episode, we told the story of Euro 2008, which sadly didn't end too well for the Dutch with the game against Russia. And today we'll be telling you the story of another tournament that ended with the game against Russia, well, the Soviet Union, Euro 88. And in case you didn't know, this one ended a little better. As well as featuring one of the best Dutch sides, it also featured the most iconic Dutch kit ever. And Colt Kits, a website dedicated to the best football attire, is joining us to discuss that and some more of the best Netherlands shirts ever. As always, we'll start with a bit of background info. So, at this point, the Dutch hadn't qualified for a major tournament in eight years. Yes, eight years. They'd missed out on the 1982 World Cup the 1984 European Championships and the 1986 World Cup. There was a big generational gap between the great side of the 70s, featuring the likes of Krauf and Neskins, and this one, where they simply just didn't have the squad or the players for success. That wasn't the case now, however. Marco van Basten, Frank Rijkaard and Ruud Hullet were taking the world by storm at AC Milan, with the latter, who was also the national team's captain, winning the Ballon d'Or in 1987. Also in the squad were John Bosman of Ajax, Aaron Vinter and the Koeman brothers. Yes, there was a second Koeman brother. Managing them all was the great Rina Smichels, the man behind Total Football and the great side in 1974. He had fallen at the final hurdle there, quite literally, losing the final to Germany, and he was determined to go one step further this time. Michels and co enjoyed an excellent qualifying campaign. They drew two games against Greece and Poland, and they won the rest to comfortably finish top of their group. Yeah, it was admittedly a rather easy group, but hey, you can only beat what's in front of you. Given that at this point, European Championships were only contested by eight teams, not 24, ah, the good old days, they were to get no such luck getting an easy group for the finals, drawing the Soviet Union, England and the Republic of Ireland. On paper, it may seem like England are the only threat here, but back then the Soviet Union and Republic of Ireland were both very good teams themselves. The standout player in qualifying was Ajax striker John Bosman, who, in Van Basten's injury-induced absence, had scored nine goals in eight games. In this form, earned him a spot on the side starting eleven for the first game of the group stages against the Soviet Union. Van Basten was, of course, in the squad, but there were question marks surrounding his fitness, as often happened with Van Basten, sadly. The full lineup was, and I do apologise if I butcher any of these names, I'm only half Dutch, in goal was Hans van Brokelen. In defence was Ronald Koeman and Frank Rijkaard, flanked by Barry van O and Edry van Tegelen. On the wings were Vandenberg and Van Schip, with centre midfielders being Wouters and Muren. And up front was Ruud Hullet and John Bosman, with Hullet dropping off slightly more. It was, quite frankly, a pretty terrible opener for the Netherlands, though. They lost 1-0, courtesy of a 57th minute goal from Vasily Ratz. It's a nice name, isn't it? Van Basten was brought on shortly after the goal, just around the hour mark, but he couldn't make a difference. Yeah, not too much to say about that really. It was a pretty disastrous game. The next one against England panned out slightly better though. It may have been because Michels actually opted to make one change to his side, starting Van Basten in place of Bosman. Both teams had lost their first games. Yep, England lost to Ireland, and therefore both desperately needed a win. The English made a far better start, with both Gary Lineker and Glenn Hoddle striking the post. However, it was the Dutch who broke the deadlock just before half-time. Hullet received the ball on the left, crossed to Van Basten with the outside of his boot, 
who took it onto his left foot and slid it in. Just eight minutes into the second half, after some more England dominance, Brian Robson levelled things up, being played in by Lineker and dinking the ball over Van Brooklyn to make it 1-1. After a tight 20 minutes in which the Dutch had started to play a little better again, it was Van Basten to the rescue yet again for Aranya. A complete mishit fell to Hullet on the edge of the box, and he set his AC Milan teammate up to stroke into the far corner with his weaker foot again. I must clarify, we do call it a weaker foot, but that's probably a bit harsh. I mean, at this point, he's already scored two goals with that left foot of his, so yeah, it clearly wasn't bad. Van Basten then went on to complete his hat-trick four minutes later, with his right foot this time, when a corner from Erwin Koeman was flicked into his path and he volleyed it into the back of the net. That made it 3-1, made him the tournament's top scorer, and it was game over. For the rest of the tournament, Renus, it might be a good idea to start, Marco. Just saying. Still, this had gone well, but heading into the final game, Aranya still had a lot of work to do. As I said, Ireland had won their first game against England, and they got a draw against the Soviet Union too, so they knew that a draw would send them through and send the Dutch home. Michel's men, who lined up in exactly the same way against England, why change a winning team, right? Struck the bar early on, before Van Brooklyn somehow kept the ball out after a goal scramble from an island corner. Seriously, I have no idea how it didn't go in. I think it hit both posts, hit the goalkeeper, hit a few defenders. But hey, all's well that ends well. Both teams continued to push, but neither could find a winner. It wasn't until the 82nd minute, after a match in which again the Dutch hadn't looked particularly good, that they finally did so, and it came through a complete freak goal. A clearance fell to the feet of Ronald Koeman at the edge of the box, and he gloriously completely scuffed a volley against the ground and towards the goal. It was looping harmlessly wide, but it somehow found the head of Wim Keft, and then the bottom corner. That made it 1-0 to the Dutch, in incredibly fortuitous circumstances, and it was enough to send them through to the semi-finals in second place. Next up were the hosts and arch-rivals, West Germany. The Dutch were going to head into the match as, well second favourites quite frankly they'd obviously finished second in the group and made it through to the semis but they never looked particularly good they lost their first game against the Soviet Union and never really looked like winning it against England they of course won 3-1 but that was largely down to the clinical finishing of Marco van Basten you could argue that England were even the better team in that match and they were as good at least one of those goals had always had also come called to see of a mishit and that same thing had happened against Ireland to give the Dutch the win so, they looked okay, but there was a lot of luck involved in them getting through to the semi-finals at all. West Germany, on the other hand, had already won their group. They were the host nation. They had a pretty good squad, and they were favourites to win the whole thing. Before we get into that match, though, we're going to take a short break now to hear from Josh from Colt Kits. As I said, about what they do, the shirt the Netherlands wore this tournament, some other great Aranya kits from the past, and more. Yeah, so Colt Kits is, is owned by uh, myself and, and two friends, actually. Um, and the three of us are all big, well, obviously big football fans and, and absolute uh, kind of shirt fanatics as well. <clears throat> so about five years ago, we thought we should sort of put this passion and enthusiasm uh, into a, a project. And so that was how Colt Kits was born. And yeah, we've just sort of grown the business since then, really. And it's... Um, We've always always tried to um, kind of create a website and a, 
sort of product, I guess, that we would all like to visit or to own ourselves, really. So it's always, it's, we're always kind of designing it. Everything we do, basically, are, are the way we operate on social and, and the way the website looks, it's, it's, um, it's kind of, we're sort of targeting our own, our own interests, really. So hopefully that kind of passion for football shines through a little bit. And, um, and you know, even if you come to our website and you don't buy anything, hopefully our sort of, our kind of ambition is that you, you'll still feel like you've, you know, you'll feel kind of, a sort of a wash with nostalgia and uh, renewed appreciation for for football shirts. So uh, yeah, so that's Colt Kits. Yeah, so obviously the, you can you um you've got kind of shirts you sell, and then you've got a lot of writing about the kits as well. Yeah, With, definitely. Yeah, well, so so the, the the kind of makeup of the three of us. One of us is a graphic designer, and I'm a by trade a journalist. Um, so we um, we sort of combined some of the kind of skills we we, we already have to um, try and uh, make cult kits a bit different from where possible other other shirt sellers as well. So yeah, now we love to talk about the kits. We love to write about the kits as well. And um, yeah, it's just because we're just so unbelievably passionate about them and and you know borderline obses- obsessive as well. So uh, yeah, that's that's part of the fun of, uh, of of having a business which is about football shirts. Yeah, and um, did you ever expect it to get, uh, or ever like kind of aim for it to get this big? Obviously, it's kind of twenty five thousand odd Twitter followers now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, it's grown really big, isn't it? <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Um, I think uh, I think we always kind of hoped that we'd be able to to grow the business um, uh, in the way that we have done. Um, we've obviously got a long way to go, and there's there's one other, <laughs> obviously one very very big. Uh, competitor which really kind of has sort of dominated the market a little bit mm. and we're just trying to um and trying to kind of establish ourselves and um and you know perhaps take a bit of that market as well but yeah i think i mean social is our social channels are really important to us you mentioned twitter instagram actually is probably our biggest well it is our biggest platform we have a couple of instagram ch- um ch- uh, accounts that are combined around 80 80,000 followers now and that grows that's growing really, really quickly, and obviously, social is just such a big part of what we do, really, because um, you know the products are very, very visual, and um, you know there's a huge community out there that, are, even if you don't want to buy from us, you know you like to look at the pictures of the shirts because it reminds you of, you know, perhaps when you first got into football or of a particular season or a player or or, or anything like that, really. So, um, you know, our, our social channels are really important to us, and um, yeah, and, we have, and actually, the last probably the last year, we've we've really noticed a, a quite a big sort of surge in interest and um, traffic coming to the site, um, and which is great. And and obviously, as I'm sure you're well know, you know, football and football shirts are very kind of in vogue at the moment. Um, you know, kind of fashion is. Is taking inspiration, I guess, from the 90s, and that was such a, you know, big era for football shirts. My favourite decade, definitely, in terms of the kind of bold designs and bright colours and all the rest of it. And um, yeah, football is obviously very, still very cool at the moment. So um, yeah, long may that continue. Why do you? Th- I um, so I write for Planet Football, which is kind of all a lot of nostalgia, obviously. Yeah. Um, my podcast very nostalgic, obviously. Like you, like you said, yeah. the rise of kind of old nine, retro nineties, particularly football kits, is coming back. So, yeah. why do you think that's happened? Do you think it's a lot of people who were kind of growing up in that era? Or do you think it's younger people who really like to look back at it? Yeah, I think there's a few things. Really. I think first of all, probably the late eighties and nineties was the first kind of era when you could 
when you could buy football kits easily. You know, before that, it wasn't necessarily that easy to get hold of shirts. They weren't um, kind of sold as commonly as they are now. So I think a lot of people, probably their first football kits probably came from, you know, late 80s, early 90s. So I think there's that, is that kind of clinging back to that kind of nostalgia of what it felt like to, to have your first kit. Um, I also think, though, that, you know, without being too kind of sanctimonious, I think modern football is, you know, obviously the quality of the game now is, in my opinion, unquestionably better than it's ever been. But I do think that there's a sort of disconnect between supporters and big clubs. And I think, you know, that's obviously driven largely through money and the kind of commercial um, uh, priorities of football clubs now. And it leaves some fans a bit cold. I know I feel like that. And um, and I think, you know, fans can't help but kind of clamour for a time when they felt perhaps slightly closer to the clubs and that disconnect wasn't wasn't so significant. Um, you know, I don't want to uh, kind of rose tint, look through rose tinted glasses and pretend that the 80s and 90s were some kind of golden era in football because they were. And there were loads of problems um, and, you know, some quite significant issues that have since been tackled. But I do feel that that bond between supporter and club is, is, has probably waned a little bit. Um, and there are exceptions to the rule. You look at Liverpool and, you know, obviously with Jurgen Klopp and the way that he understands what the club means to the community there's a real closeness there it feels like and in Germany as well so you see that the kind of fan-owned clubs and the model there is very much about making sure that the fans are the priority and and the kind of commercial objectives are uh, take a back seat but generally <clears throat> you know I think that's um, I think those are exceptions to the rule and I think for that reason people sort of look back and um, to a time when perhaps you know they felt a bit closer to their clubs you mentioned um, first football shirts. Do you remember what your first shirt was? Yeah, I do. Yeah, well, I'm an Ipswich Town fan, right? Um, and I'm uh, my yeah. My first shirt was in about 1987. I just still own it, and it was um, it was an Adidas. It was the last Adidas shirt before the club moved to Umbro, um, and uh, it's absolutely beautiful. I wish I could still fit in it, but um, unfortunately, I don't even think I'd get my hand in it. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I still remember it. I've got the full kit. I can remember uh, coming downstairs and uh, it being laid out on the sofa, and just that feeling was uh, was really special. And uh, just wearing it every opportunity, the full kit as well, which is a bit embarrassing. But um, you know, I was very young then. But yeah, obviously remember my first kit, and um, yeah, very fond memories of that. Yeah, obviously a big thing about. Um every kind of major international tournament is, you know, the Euros, the World Cups, is is the kits. Um, you mentioned how kind of it's changed a bit with clubs, you know. I mean, you've got sponsors now. On the international stage is where you get the kind of best kits these days? Uh, I mean, I probably would have, would have said up until a year or two ago, probably not, actually. I think the international kits have been a bit, over the last probably decade, they've been a bit... Um, understated and a bit dull actually and i think we're, we're seeing a big change now that manufacturers particularly nike um are trying to step away from that very kind of uh sort of plain template kind of style which is definitely a good thing because i think fans are very very bored of it i know i was so yeah i mean obviously you, you look back in over the last 20 or 30 years and some of the the most iconic shirts you know, the real kind of 
popular favourites um, have been international shirts. I think in probably Germany, 1990, Holland, which we're going to talk about. Um, uh, and so, some, a lot of the kits from uh, USA 94, the French shirt from France 98, which was obviously a, um, a kind of a taken inspiration from, I think, the France 1984 Euro Championship shirt. So, yeah, I think you, you look back through history and you'd probably pick, you know, if you were going to pick a top 10, I'd say probably half of those would be international shirts. So perhaps I've never really thought about it like that, actually. Um, but, uh, yeah, you're probably right. I think there's... Um, it's probably international shirts probably do have a, a a big proportion of those those iconic shirts that we all still love today. Yeah, well, that uh, that brings us nicely onto uh, the next topic, actually. So obviously, <laughs> yeah. this podcast is about looking back at Holland at uh, Euro nineteen eighty eight, and one of the most memorable things about it was, of course, the shirt they were wearing. Yeah, like you said, it's considered one of the most iconic, one of general favourites these days. How do you think that really came about? Actually, I should just say, um, I don't know if people, a lot of people know this, but that template, so that template was also used, uh, I think Germany wore it as an away shirt, kind of lovely green version. I think East Germany had it as well, and the USSR um, had a version of it as well, that that, that uh, kind of chevroni weird um, design that, that it had. But that template I've since discovered, and I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm an Ipswich Town fan. The template is called Ipswich, uh, which um, I just, you know, I just wanted to mention that because um, uh, I can't help but feeling a, a sense of pride about that. But anyway, um, the question was what what made it so special? Um, it was just really different, I think. I think before before that shirt, um, kits were were still pretty conservative, really, kind of fairly sort of solid colours, and you know, not not particularly fussy not a huge amount of kind of intricacy in terms of the um, the design or patterns. And then suddenly that shirt came along and it was a bit of a game changer, really. And I mentioned that obviously it wasn't only what that template wasn't only worn by the Dutch, but I think the fact that it was their home shirt and that famous orange that it was set against, the template was set against, the design was set against, that I think just makes it stand out from the rest. I mean, I would say also the Germany shirt, the, the the kind of emerald green version is also beautiful, but I think the fact that it's it's that trademark uh, unique orange that you instantly know is Holland makes it really special. And and um, I you know I think they only wore that shirt in Euro '88. I don't think they wore it in the um, qualifiers, and and they didn't wear it in the qualifiers for the for Italian '90 either. They reverted back to a plain orange, so it was almost had this kind of special status that it was just worn. I think is it five games at Euro '88. Uh, and obviously a tournament they won as well. So that is a kind of cocktail of things that all add up to make that shirt so special. And I think, yeah, obviously it helps that they won the tournament, of course. Um, but you think about the players who wore it as well, it's uh, it's kind of um, forever linked to, you know, um, Ruud Hullet and that incredible header and obviously Van Basten and the goal that he scored in the final. Um, so, yeah, I think whenever you look at a really iconic shirt, there's usually three or four factors that have gone into making that so special and so iconic. And it's not just the way it looks. It's also the story behind it, the players who wore it, um, and the kind of context as well, that context that it was the first kind of design that was very, very bold and different to anything that had gone before. I have, um, I've got Dutch family, hence my interest in the national team. And okay. So I talked to my dad uh, or my granddad, and they at the time they say that they hated this shirt, but now they look back and they love it. 
Yeah, think- I read. I think I read somewhere that Ruth Hullett gave an interview a couple of years ago about the shirt, and he said at the time all the players hated it because they thought it looked like fish scales or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's what my dad said as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is interesting. I think there's there's often those those kind of very very popular shirts that become become very you know much loved years after. They're of, they're often perhaps not particularly loved at the time. I'm thinking about the Arsenal Bruce Banana, for example. I can remember that at the time. I was very young at the time, but I can still remember, you know, fans taking the piss out of Arsenal and what on earth are they wearing? And now it's, you know, it's one of the most sought-after shirts. If you've got an original of that, it's, you know, it's worth hundreds of pounds. Um, beyond going way back um, to Coventry City, remember that, well, I don't remember because it was before I was born, but they had a brown away shirt, which, you know, at the time it was kind of derided. And now it's, it's uh, again, it's an absolute, you know, classic. And if you've got that, then, well, good luck to you. Um, so I think some of these kind of groundbreaking shirts, because they're so different from what's gone before, that they, you know, it takes time to, for people to, to almost to catch up a bit, if you like, and to kind of get used to this new style. And and um, so I think I think that's almost like a kind of badge of honour, actually, for for a football shirt, if at the time, you know, players and fans are a bit dubious about it and a bit kind of concerned that it's a bit too different, then that's almost a kind of precursor for it, for iconic status, you know, 10, 20 years down the line. This is literally just off the top of my head because I have no idea what it was. But do you know what uh, what Holland's Awake it was that, that year by any chance? Uh, do you know what? I really don't because they only wore the home shirt at Euro 88. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing it would probably be white. I'm just thinking Italian 90. I think their away shirt was white with orange trim, almost like a reversal of the home shirt. Um, I can't I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those, isn't it? It's, I remember uh, Euro 2008, we had a really nice away shirt. It was uh, light blue with the flag, but you, you just, yeah. we never had to wear it because we never faced a side yeah. that was wearing similar colours. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the that's the kind of curse of being a, a Holland fan or a Norwich City fan or a Wolves fan. You know, you don't really need your away kit very often. Uh, although, obviously, these days, the kind of commercial aspects of um, shirt production, a lot of, a lot of clubs will wear... Uh, away shirts when they don't really need to just to just to kind of get the uh, the wear out of them and ensure that fans who bought them don't feel like they've been shortchanged but yeah back then that wasn't the case was it and um i think if you'd if you'd uh, you know today if holland had been at that in that tournament they would have worn an away shirt at least once because you know for commercial reasons but um back then it wasn't the case so um they stuck to orange and uh, and i think we're now all glad they did uh, obviously that's Generally considered to be the best Holland shirt, um, maybe the ones yeah. in 74 as well. Have you got any yeah. other kind of favourites that come to mind? Yeah, I think I think one of my favourites actually is the um, is the Nike France 98 shirt. Um, I really, really like the collar. It's kind of, it feels like a thick, shiny material. It just looked great. And obviously Bergkamp scored the incredible goal against... Argentina and then they played I think it was Brazil wasn't it in the semi-final it was that epic game yeah. and were really unlucky to lose and Brazil obviously had a really nice Nike shirt as well and uh, that's always been one that kind of really stands out for me I just I think it was a real beauty and the away shirt actually that went with it I think it was like deep blue was lovely as well so that was a good tournament for kits too so um, that would be my uh, that would be my second choice I think. The, obviously, the Dutch orange is considered one of the most iconic, uh, kind of general shirts colours around. 
what nation yeah. do you think produce has produced the best shirts over the years in general gosh that's a tough question um nation? well brazil i guess i love the <clears throat> when i was kind of growing up when i was growing up I, it was brazil's kits were made by umbro which i always used to think was just bizarre you know this kind of relatively small shirt manufacturer from manchester producing you know arguably the greatest footballing nation's shirts i loved it i thought it was brilliant and um you know umbro was so dominant in the premier league then as well it, it felt really kind of <clears throat> kind of glamorous i guess for to see you know roberto carlos and romario and um Bebeto all wearing these umbro shirts uh, and they had some great ones as well you know i'm thinking kind of early 90s and then uh, obviously USA 94 when they t won the tournament it was a lovely shirt as well um, and then I'm thinking before that we have some shirts on the website that were the manufacturer of Topper beautiful shirts really elegant design the colours are just so obviously so iconic as well so I think I would uh, and it's pr probably pretty unoriginal choice going for Brazil but it's hard to look beyond um, Brazil. And obviously, then you've got the Nike years and the fantastic adverts. The, I'm thinking the airport advert, obviously, it was such a such a classic as well. It's just, um, it's hard to, hard to look beyond, uh, beyond Brazil, I think. Yeah, fair enough. Well, that's just about everything. So people here are listening and, you know, want to get want to get a Holland shirt or uh, any other. So they can um, find your website and your social media. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so it's cultkits.com. Um, and obviously we're on we're on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok now as well too. Not that I understand it particularly, but um, uh, yeah, do, do take a look. And as I said, you know, the website has been designed that yeah, obviously we'd love it if you wanted to buy something, of course. But um, but equally, we we made a site that um, that we hope that even if you come and you don't want to buy anything, you just want to have a look around and and reminisce that you'll um, you'll leave with a kind of warm fuzzy feeling inside so uh hopefully you know take a look around even if you if you're not interested in buying and um just remind yourself of how great old football kits are yeah yeah i do that a lot i uh good <laughs> yeah yeah it's, uh, I, I always think i was born too late you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah all right well awesome Th thanks for coming on cool that no, was a pleasure nice to talk to you So, that was Josh from Colt Kits. If you want to buy some classic football shirts, read about them in depth, or just simply look at them like I like to do quite often, be sure to check out their website and follow them on Instagram and Twitter at Colt Kits. Right, so, back to 1988 we go. As I said, the Dutch were to face West Germany, many expected them to lose, and it was quite frankly a huge game. And not just because it was a European Championship semi-final. Although, yeah, that's a pretty big factor too. At the time, this was arguably the biggest rivalry in international football, for reasons within football and outside of the sport. Fourteen years earlier, the two had also faced off on German soil for the World Cup final. The Dutch had the better team that year, and quite frankly should have won. But after taking an early lead, they prioritised humiliating Germany over actually scoring another goal. They were punished for this as Germany went on to win 2-1. It was the same matchup. The same location, the same manager for the Dutch, while Germany were now managed by their 1974 captain, Franz Beckenbauer. If Michels could lead his side to victory here, it would be the ultimate redemption. The ultimate revenge. The boss handed Erwin Koeman his first start of the tournament for it, with the winger replacing Van Schip out wide. 
The match kicked off in front of a ridiculous amount of Dutch fans. Given the sea of orange, watching it without context, you'd have probably thought it was being played in Amsterdam rather than in Hamburg. Well, maybe that's a bit extreme. There were still quite a few German flags waving, but you get the point. The first half was a tight one. The Netherlands made the better stat, with Koeman going close with the free kick, before Germany settled in and they had chances themselves, with Rudy Vullet, good buddy of Frank Rijkaard, a few years later, looking particularly dangerous. As the teams headed down the tunnel for the interview, the game was locked at nil-nil with no clear favourite, although you could argue Germany had actually looked slightly better. Five minutes into the second half, things unsurprisingly got dirty. A foul from Erwin Koeman led to the team squaring up to each other, and things then got even messier five minutes later as Jürgen Klinsmann went down in classic theatrical fashion. Yeah, it was probably a foul, but oh, it just bugs you when a player goes down like that. Mind you, Iron Robin was Dutch, so can't criticise too much. Anyway, he went down from a, uh, after a tackle from Rijkaard, winning his side a penalty. Lothar Matthäus converted it, and that was 1-0 Germany. Oh god, was it going to happen again? The Dutch then began to push, but just couldn't really get a grip on what had become a fiery affair, disrupted by fouls and conflicts all over the pitch. However, they finally got their chance to level things up in the 74th minute. Ronald Koeman played a long ball through for Marco van Basten, who was taken down in the box. He actually seemed a bit surprised by the penalty, suggesting it wasn't really a foul, but hey, can't complain. The defender Koeman then stepped up for the penalty and made it 1-1. The match now looks set to head into extra time, but Van Basten had other ideas. With just two minutes left, he ran onto an excellent ball from Jan Wouters and somehow slid it across the goal and into the bottom left corner, sending every Dutchman wild. Watching it back... It literally looks like a slight tackle that ended up in the back of the net. Thankfully, it was in the right end. The full-time whistle followed shortly afterwards, and it was almost as if the Netherlands had won the tournament already. They had thrown the proverbial monkey off their back, and they felt destined for glory. Michels himself later said, Yeah, we won the tournament, but we all knew that the semi-final was the real final. Indeed, if you ask any Dutch fan who was alive at the time, they'll probably tell you this match was more memorable than the final itself. Seriously, if you need any more proof of just how much this match meant to the Dutch and how much bad blood they held towards Germany, you just need to look at Ronald Koeman's celebration at the end of the game. After swapping shirts with a German player, he proceeded to walk up to the stands and pretend to wipe his backside with it. I'm not, you know, condoning those actions, but, uh, well, it's pretty funny. What's even better is that he's been asked recently whether he regrets those actions and he pretty confidently said that he doesn't yep that's our manager anyway you know what's going to happen next but there was still a final to take place and it was to be against the soviet union the side who had dispatched with the dutch 1-0 in the opening game before beating italy in the semi-finals however with form belief momentum thousands of fans behind them and market van Basten on top form the netherlands weren't going to lose again they made a strong start and they took the lead after just half an hour when Van Busten headed across goal for Hullet to thump a header into the back of the net with, quite frankly, ridiculous power. Seriously, it was pretty much straight at the keeper but it moved so fast that by the time he saw it, it was already in the back of the net. At half time, they were leading and they were looking pretty comfortable. Then, nine minutes into the second half, it happened. That goal was scored. 
There seemed to be not a lot of danger, really, when Murin completely overhit across to the back post. But Marco von Basten had other ideas. He watched it come down, he put his right foot through, and he sent it flying into the far corner to score one of the sport's greatest goals and make it 2-0. Seriously, if you somehow haven't seen it, go and watch it on YouTube. Just click pause, go watch it, and then come back. You won't regret it. The USSR did rally, with Van Brooklyn giving them a penalty in rather rash fashion. However, he made amends by saving it, keeping his nation's two-gold lead and his own clean sheet. They'd then hold that lead to the end, and they'd win their first, and to date, only major tournament. They'd destroyed England, avenged the 1974 final against their nemesis, scored one of the all-time great goals, and they lifted the trophy at the end of it. Not a bad few weeks, was it? Michels would go on to retire, while the squad stayed largely intact for the 1990 World Cup and the 1992 Euros. Well, they'd failed to repeat such success, being knocked out in the last 16 in the semi-finals, but hey, who cares? Plus, in 92, they beat Germany again, which is always nice. We don't need to talk about what happened between them in 1990. Now, not to get your hopes up, but in 1988, the Dutch had failed to qualify for consecutive tournaments. Their star striker was struggling with an injury and only just fit enough to make it. Their captain was considered to be one of the best players in the world and Ronald Koeman was heavily involved. Does that remind you of anything? Just saying. Anyway, that was the story of Euro 1988. Thanks to Cult Kits for appearing and if you enjoyed the episode, which surely you did, I mean, come on, Holland actually won something for once, then be sure to follow both them and us on Twitter. And make sure you subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify or Apple. Thank you well and as always, hop Holland.